0: So this is the Dr. Harold Miniature and Collectibles paid read, is that what we're calling it? Okay, here we go. Dr. Harold, noted professor of collectibles with a Ph.D. in Funko, has gathered the best of the best collections and collectibles in one online store. For the collector, Dr. Harold has action figures from McFarlane, Mezco, NECA, Marvel, DC, Bandai, and Ninja Turtles, plus Pokemon cards, retro toys, Dragon Ball Z, G.I. Joe, Mandalorian, Star Wars, Star Trek, Game of Thrones, Power Rangers, Strange Things, Rick and Morty, Transformers, Magic the Gathering, John Wick, Harry Potter, Indiana Jones, Oh, boy, that's a lot. Also, board games, card games, and for those mystically inclined, tarot cards. DrHerald.MyShopify.com. That's DrHerald.MyShopify.com. Dr. Harold played varsity for the University of Retail Therapy, so he knows what sports fans want. Bobbleheads, panini baseball cards, and collectibles for the NFL, the NBA, and the soccer leagues. Just, just go now. Dr. Harold.myshopify.com. Dr. You're going to love that new stuff is added all the time. So the treasure hunt for you can continue. Dr. Harold's miniatures and collectibles online. Dr.
1: Adventure, mystery, and folklore. Strange tales that have been gathered in the far corners of the world. These are the stories you will hear when you listen to the members of that unique organization, Adventure Incorporated. Three of them, Jason Grimm, Frank Fletcher, and Greg Devlin, are seated now in the lounge of an ocean liner, bound for one of their assignments in Danger. Danger. Did you gentlemen notice that emerald ring that girl was wearing?
2: Who was noticing the ring?
3: I was noticing the girl. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I did, Jason. It looks like a melee and emerald. I bought one in Singapore when I was there on that porcelain goddess case. Uh, speaking of emeralds and oriental goddesses, did you ever hear of the curse of the Emerald
1: Buddha?
3: Now, don't tell me Adventure Incorporated sent you over there to investigate a curse.
1: No, I got this story several years ago while I was visiting the commander of a French foreign legion post in the Cambodian jungle. The doctor of the post told it to me. Three men sat before a campfire in the heart of the Cambodian jungle. Two of them were white, dressed in soil tropic suits and sun helmets. The third was a dark-skinned Cambodian. His name was Gengai. He was clothed only in a loincloth. In the morning, this Gengai, native fisherman from a nearby lake, would lead the two hunters on a trail of a giant man-killing tiger that was terrorizing the countryside. For five days now, they had followed the spoor, and their hopes were high. Sitting with his back against a palm tree, staring impassively into the fire, this native told his companions stories of other days, of his home on the shores of the great jungle-bordered lake. The magnificent deserted city that lay virtually on the edge of their camp. A strange legend had been handed down the ages about this mysterious city, and this native gangai told it to his employers.
3: And in the great capital of the Khmer people, which was the finest city in all Asia, there is a statue of the Lord Buddha, sitting upon a coiled cobra, which is the emblem of that race. And this statue is fashioned out of emeralds, so cunningly matched and cemented together that the whole work seems as one solid stone. It shines with a green light so bright
4: that none but the faithful may look upon it. Whoever finds this idol is doomed to certain and horrible death.
1: Jim Sanders and his companion Lester Grove listened with rapt attention as the descendant of the ancient Khmer told the story of the great treasure that lay beneath the Bayonne of Angkor Somewhere under this great central tower of the temple lay the treasure of a vanished race. The golden emblems of Shiva, the golden throne, and the Emerald Buddha. Sanders grabbed his heavy rifle and peered into the jungle night expectantly. Genghis turned to him. Tiger! Sanders anticipated the sight of two burning points of light that would be the eyes of the great striped beast. He wondered if he would be ready for the spring of this lord of the jungle. And then... After what seemed an eternity, the three men relaxed their vigil. The crash in the underbrush was farther away. The tiger had passed them by, had gone to do his hunting elsewhere. Sanders recalled the story Gengay had told them. That story Gengay's been telling us about the treasure and the curse of the Emerald Buddha has got me quite curious. Let's poke around in those ruins for a while before we take up that tiger's trail. Who knows? Maybe we'll find that hidden treasure. Oh,
3: matey, I'm with you. But this here runs in tigers for a lot of blinking natives. It's not to me like him. If we finds that treasure, it's back to blighty for me.
1: The next morning, the white men visited the ruins of Angkor Wat. Gingai, who guided them to the massive pile of masonry, refused to enter the dead city. He still feared the spirits of the snake people that guarded the place. But even greater was his fear of the terrible curse of the Emerald Buddha. Hour after hour, the adventurers explored the ruins... ...led on by the fascinating call of hidden treasure. They pulled aside the vines and peered into dark recesses between the stone walls. They climbed the long flights of stone steps... ...and methodically searched each crypt and cloister. me, but this is a big place. I hope we don't get lost in these alleyways. The little cockney groped his way forward in the semi-darkness of the passage... As they progressed farther in the maze of passageways beneath the central pyramid of the temple, it became so dark that Sanders had to light the lantern he had brought along. And finally, in one of the subterranean rooms, the men found something that made their hearts beat fast in excited expectation. See? Go. Look at this. We found something. This stone doesn't match the others. It's a slab instead of squared like the rest of them. Oh, aye. Aye. You suppose it hides an opening? We'll find out in a quick short order. Get the sensory old collection of dust and rubble out of the way so we can get to All it. Aye. After digging with their hands till their fingers were numb, they found a deep crack between the slab and the adjoining stones. They put their shoulders to the panel and pushed. The stone moved. There was a sound of rusty metal as the door pressed back against the concealed leaf spring. The treasure seekers stared at each other in astonishment. This must be the door to the treasure room that Gengai had described in his story. The door that had not been opened for centuries. Again, the men put their weight against the stone (coughs) panel. The crack widened just enough for them to creep into the vault beyond. In the far end of the room, the lantern light caught and held a metallic gleam. The men were awestruck as they took in the sight. Before them were piled the treasures of Angkor. Gold and silver ornaments and vessels. Precious jewels and gem-encrusted robes. Wealth beyond measure. And on the table overlooking these treasures, like a silent guardian, sat the Emerald Buddha. No place. Without it. Without it. The men sobered quickly. The hollow echo of the room seemed to make their voices a desecration of the silence of centuries. Reverently, they approached the forbidden treasure. As they moved, the whole room seemed to fill with the scent of bitter almonds. The men drew back. This strange odor could mean but one thing. Somewhere in the darkness lurked a terror of the jungle, a king cobra. Then, as if some invisible hand had touched it, a golden goblet fell from its place atop the treasure pile and rolled almost to the feet of the startled men. They looked up quickly. Before them reared a giant milk-white cobra poised to strike. The beady ears glared malevolently at the humans who had disturbed his lair. Oh, Bobby,
4: Let's get out of here.
1: The lantern crashed against the wall and fell to the floor in a flaming mass. As Sanders slid through the small opening, the other hunter, white with fear, began to push through behind him. Sanders looked back. The flickering light from the broken lantern fell on a sight that made his nerves crisp. The slab that had formed the door of the hidden room had sprung back into place, pressing his companion against the wall. Sanders saw in that one fleeting glance that there was nothing he could do to help. His friend was dead. The curse of the Emerald Buddha had taken the victim. Then he saw something that sent stark terror ripping down his spine. The giant cobra was crawling over the dead man's body into the corridor. Completely unnerved now, he turned and ran along the corridor in wild, headlong flight. Behind him raced a huge snake. After what seemed hours, Sanders stumbled from the ancient corridor into daylight. But even as he emerged from the temple, an unseen hand seemed to reach out and snatch at his ankle. A thick loop of sprawling vine caught his foot and threw him full upon his face. Before he, he could stagger to his feet, the whole temple seemed to crumble about him. The vine upon which he had tripped had dislodged loose stones and rubble that came crashing down upon him in an avalanche of doom. Was his also the fate that had been foretold in the legend of the Emerald Buddha? When Gengai at last dared to approach the ruined temple of Angkor Wat to call for his masters, he found Sanders unconscious half-buried in a heap of debris near the ancient walls of the Bayonne. Beside the injured man stretched the smashed body of a large albino cobra. Gengay could find no trace of the other white hunter who had entered the ruins. A week later, white man and a brown man approached a jungle outpost of the French Foreign Legion. The exhausted native was carrying the half-dead white man. The company surgeon who was called in the vain hope of saving the Crest Hunter, pieced together a very strange tale. The white man dropped into a coma from which he never emerged, still muttering about a forbidden temple, a beautiful Emerald Buddha, a white cobra, and a terrible oriental curse. At this point, we pause for a 30-second commercial, after which we return to...
2: Adventure Incorporated. You know, Jason, tales about these oriental curses fascinate me. I even had a ringside seat while one of them went to work. Uh, Where was that, Greg? Right in the middle of the Kalahari Desert.
3: Africa, huh?
2: Yeah, southwestern part, not far from Johannesburg. Mm, It's a hot spot, all right. Tell us about it, Greg. (laughs) Greg. This Captain Von Schuller sat in his chair in the shade of a tree and surveyed the ragged African before him. The Germans had driven most of the natives out of the rich territory that had once been their home for centuries. Now the few that still lived here were about to face the ordeal of crossing and burning trackless expanse of the Kalahari Desert to seek a new home. The native bowed slightly before the German officer.
4: I have a message for you from my chief.
2: The officer stirred slightly in his chair and regarded the old man with contempt.
1: What message, Spinehund? Speak quickly and get out. It is time for my nap.
2: My chief bids me
4: tell you that since this land is no longer ours, a tribe must leave. The only water this side of desert is here in your camp. We wish to fill our water vessels for many days must pass before we reach water.
1: So, does your pig of a chief think I am in this accursed country to provide him and his people with water? Get out! Get your water
2: in the Kalahari! The native listened with an impassive face to the captain's words. Then he looked straight into the face of the German. The old man raised his hand and pointed toward the border of the Kalahari.
4: You have denied my people water. So now, all but the strongest must die of thirst. You, who are sending us to our death, will die in the desert. Not for lack of water, but by it.
2: The officer rose... And in a sudden, impassioned rage, struck the native across the face with his riding crop. Ah! The old man did not flinch from the insulting blow, but pointed his hand at his attacker. You
4: shall die. By water in the desert, you shall die. I pronounce against you the curse of the Kalahari.
2: About a week later, Captain Von Schuler received orders to take a scouting party into the desert. The Germans, led by native guides, set out upon the long, hard march. On the third day, the last known waterhole had been passed, and the trip across the wilderness was beginning to tell upon both men and horses. But on they went, till at last the party entered a small canyon. Now nestled in the bottom of the rocky defile were two clear pools of water. There Von Schuler called a halt.
1: You men dismount here. You were drinking water your horses at the larger pool. I am going to have a nice bath in this one.
2: Then Von Schuller removed his uniform and waded into the water. The weary soldiers drank their fill, watered their horses, then sat back to enjoy the shade of the surrounding boulders. Suddenly, a strangled cry brought them to their feet. The men ran toward the smaller pool. Von Schuller stood in the center, his arms thrashing madly. Before the men realized what had happened, the officer had sank to his chin. and Another wild scream burst from his lips. Suddenly the plight of their leader became clear—quicksand. One of the orderlies reached the edge of the pool on the run and snapped the end of a long bullwhip toward the struggling man. It fell short. In a despairing effort to reach it, Von Schuler overbalanced and plunged forward beneath the water. There was a short struggle, and Von Schuler disappeared, dying as the old witch doctor had prophesied—by water in the desert, by the dread curse of the Kalahari. <laughs>
1: At this point, we have another 30-second commercial, after which back to... Adventure Incorporated. You know, Greg, I'll bet the dregs out of my next cup of tea that we're going to have a story from Frank here about China.
2: Well, Jason, that's a bet I'd like to see you win. I want to hear it. (laughs) Thanks, (laughs) fellas.
1: I
3: I had no idea you were so anxious to get me started. (laughs) But we are. (laughs) No kidding. Adventure Incorporated sent me to China... To a spot where you can get your hip pocket just crammed full of valuable valuables
2: if you'll just
3: uh, changey-changey for one certain item.
2: I'll bet a down payment on my right arm. I know what you mean. What's that, Greg? You're referring to guns. Right. You named it.
3: (laughs) Captain Lance Corbin watched impatiently as the last sling loads of cargo were hoisted aboard the rusty little cargo steamer Tai Ping. It was hot and smelly at the Hankow dock, and he was also on the verge of being behind schedule. The outgoing tide of the muddy Yangtze River tugged at the mooring lines, seemingly as anxious to get the steamer into the stream as was her skipper. At last, all was finished, and the army of coolie stevedores scrambled ashore. The mate had gone forward to let go the lines when a volley of gunfire came from one of the narrow streets, and a small, heavy set Chinese rushed up the gangway, followed by four other Orientals in army uniforms. He made his way to the bridge and confronted Captain Corvin.
1: I am Wang Lo merchant of Tonkin. You are carrying a cargo of mine upriver. My comprador failed to inform you that I was to take passage on your ship with uh, these men who are my bodyguards. Eh.
4: What about those shots
3: ashore? Are you sure they aren't the reason you decided to make this trip? You seem to be in a mighty big hurry to get aboard.
1: Oh, think nothing of them, my friend. There are enemies of mine here in Hang Agents of other merchants who are my rivals in the silk trade. They will use any means to get the best of a competitor. But none of them men will attack you. And I am safe from them now.
3: Okay, Wang, I'm too busy now to check your story, so I'll have to take your word for it. I'll have the steward fix up a cabin for you. But your men will have to sleep on deck. All the rest of the rooms are taken. And now if you'll excuse me, I'll get this tub underway. We have a scheduled time to hit the rapids, and I can't afford any delays. Corbin watched the Chinese climb clumsily down the ladder to the main deck and then turned to shout orders for getting underway. The Taiping churned the muddy waters of the upper Yangtze. Yichang was left behind at last and Captain Corbin was glad to see the massive mud-built houses slip quietly astern. Even though it meant the trials and dangers of the walled-in rapids where the least mistake in handling meant disaster. One after the other... Ta-tung, the Ta the Kung Ling, the Fa Po, and the Mei Sun Rapids were negotiated with the aid of a skillful pilot and the thousands of river coolies. At last, Captain Corvin steamed out into a long, sluggish stretch of pea green water. The ship came abreast of a small fishing village, and Corvin carefully scanned the river ahead, on the lookout for any small craft that might get in the way of the steamer. The Taiping was rounding a curve near the village when the captain turned suddenly to see Wang Lutsi standing beside him on the wing of the bridge. There was an oily politeness in the voice of the Chinese merchant as he spoke.
1: You must pull in near the shore at the next bend. I have cargo which must be discharged there. Sorry,
3: Wang, no can do.
1: My manifest named King is my next port of discharge. I'm afraid there has been a slight error, my captain, which surely you will rectify. It would be too bad to disappoint my men who will be waiting for the guns I am to deliver to them at the ferry crossing. Guns? Certainly. It is impossible to carry on a war, even a small one, without guns. They are in the cases marked machinery that you loaded in Hankow. Ah.
3: Well, that's why you were in such a hurry to get aboard, eh? Yes.
1: But the followers of Leo Song who tried to kill me in Hankow should know better than to attack the tiger of the Yangtze. So should you know better than to oppose my wishes.
3: The Chinese drew a small automatic from the folds of his sleeve. And held it in line with Corbin's middle.
1: You will take orders from me, Captain. While you were busy at the last rapid, my men took over your ship. Your officers and crew are under guard. Even now they are preparing to drop anchor.
3: Under the threat of the muzzle of the gun, there was nothing to do but to obey the wish of the gunner. Gun the ship had hardly fetched up on her anchor chain before Captain Corbin and his officers were marched into the wheelhouse and a heavy door bolted upon them from the outside. Wang Lozi gloated over his bit of strategy.
1: (laughs) It is said that he who rides the tiger has a rough ride. In an hour, my men will be aboard, unloading guns for the overthrow of the warlord of this province. Even now, one of my bodyguards is signaling to them.
3: Corvin watched through a porthole as a large junk moved silently out from shore and drew alongside... A gang of coolies leaped aboard the Taiping and rushed to secure the lines. Under Wang's direction, the forward hatches were uncovered, and the work of transferring the cases of guns began. Corvin groaned in dismay as his chief mate joined him at the portal. Uh, looks like we're trapped for good now. I should never have trusted that Wang Lo Chi. He'll take our entire cargo, and there's no telling what he'll do to us.
2: He could drop us overboard, but I don't think it's likely. He knows we got a gunboat control in these upper reaches, and it may show up at any time. Uh. That's probably why he's in such a hurry to get the guns unloaded. Those coolies on the junk surely can't be the gang he was signaling. Captain, look. Something's gone wrong. The coolies are running to the junk.
3: There was a slight bump and roll as another vessel moved alongside the Taiping. Corvin and his men were unable to see the approaching vessel as it was on the offshore side of their ship. The door of the cabin was suddenly opened, and three men stepped into the room. One Lo Tsi was flanked by two American Navy officers.
1: Hello, Captain. I'm Lieutenant Dexter of the Manila. Lucky thing we happened to be passing and decided to see what was wrong. When we came aboard, Wang Lo-Tsi told us the whole story. Your passenger was a pretty smart man. After the river pirates came aboard and captured you and your crew, they made him tell them where the cargo of guns was hidden. Well, uh, how do you know we were in trouble? Wang Lhotse managed to get aft and raise your ensign upside down. We recognized the international distress signal and came alongside.
3: The men stepped out onto the deck and the mate hurried to release the crew members who were locked in their quarters, then scanned the shore. The junk was making good time getting away, the huge mainsail billowing out. Suddenly, Captain Corbin grasped the arm of the skipper of the gunboat. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wang Tsi was no hero, as he wanted you to believe. He just wanted to save his own neck when he saw he couldn't get away. He raised the distress signal, all right. But it wasn't a signal you. He was signaling his men ashore. Look! coming over the brow of a small hill just back to the shore, was a huge polyglot crowd, dressed in well-worn army uniforms. The men watched as the army of Wang lo the Tiger of the Yangtze, halted, looked with evident surprise at the scene before them, and then fled in confusion. Lieutenant Dexter smiled as he turned to Captain Corbin.
1: (laughs) You know, I should have known that no true seaman raised that flag in the distress signal. He didn't know that by custom and regulation the inverted flag should have been raised to half-mast. Ensign Walters. Arrest Wang Luzi, our overstuffed warlord, and escort him aboard the Manila.
2: You know, gentlemen, I ran across that old gunboat, the Manila, the last time I was in Shanghai. She'd been taken off the Yangtze patrol and was about to be sent back to Mare Island. Well, Craig, she deserved retiring.
1: She had some pretty tough shows out there. <laughs> I ran across some pretty two families myself. The Time Venture Incorporated sent me to Algeria to find that missing newspaper correspondent. Those boys were of a slightly different nationality, but their ideas and ambitions were about the same.
2: Well, just
1: when I got all primed to hear Jason's grim story, laid in the wild desert country of North Africa, he had to go and leave us. But you can bet I'll be at the adjoining table the next time those boys from Adventure Incorporated get together, even if I have to bribe the chief steward. Join us again next week at this same time as we listen to other tales told by Jason Grimm, who is really Pat McGeehan, Greg Devlin, who is Pappy Boyington, and Frank Fletcher,
0: who is Frank Graham. So, this is the Dr. Harold Miniature and Collectibles paid read. Is that what we're calling it? Okay, here we go. One, two, three, go. Dr. Harold, noted professor of collectibles with a PhD in Funko, has gathered the best of the best collections and collectibles in one online store. For the collector, Dr. Harold has action figures from McFarlane, Mezco, NECA, Marvel, DC, Bandai, and Ninja Turtles, plus Pokemon cards, retro toys. Dragon Ball Z, G.I. Joe, Mandalorian, Star Wars, Star Trek, Game of Thrones, Power Rangers, Strange Things, Rick and Morty, Transformers, Magic the Gathering, John Wick, Harry Potter, Indiana Jones. <gasps> oh boy, that's a lot. Also, board games, card games, and for those mystically inclined, tarot cards. Dr. That's DrHerald.MyShopify.com. That's drharold.myshopify.com. Dr. Harold played varsity for the University of Retail Therapy, so he knows what sports fans want. Bobbleheads, panini baseball cards, and collectibles for the NFL, the NBA, and the soccer leagues. Just just go now. DrHarold.myshopify.com. DrHarold.myshopify.com. You're going to love that new stuff is added all the time. So the treasure hunt for you can continue. Dr. Harold's miniatures and collectibles online. DrHarold.myshopify.com.